If you have a Bible, go to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be continuing the series we're in. And we're taking that idea that we just talked about, how sometimes we overcomplicate stuff. And this morning is just about being a Christian. And the, the beautiful thing is for those of you who like simple things, I like simple things. Anybody else like simple things? Isn't that a good thing, right? This morning is just going to be really simple. We're dealing with a text that has some simple points, and yet they're incredibly profound and could change your life this morning, could change my life. That's my prayer. And so just to give you some backstory, this is a series called For the Love of God, and that's one of the themes in First John, just looking at what it means for people who love God. What, what is this book telling us? And last week, Pastor Jared preached a really great sermon talking about how much it matters what we know about God, how we think about God, what we believe about God, and you should go on our website and listen to it if you missed it. This week, we're going to be just picking up where we dropped off. We'll be in chapter 2, verse 3, and to give you some just context for what it means, if you're new to PBC, um, one of our key values here is we say and we mean we're a church that trembles before God's word. And what that means today is that in the, in the next 25, 30 minutes when we go through this text, um, we are going to try and just take God's word really carefully. I'm going to ask you to join with me in not injecting your own thoughts into the text. We're going to try and let the text speak for itself, and we're going to hear God's word through the Bible. Is that, is that okay if we make that our starting point? And the, the goal will be as a result of doing that, as we hear and understand God's word as the author intended, that you and I would love God more and worship him more as a result of it. So that's the plan for this morning. I hope you own a Bible. If you do own a Bible, I hope you bring it to church. That's all we're going to do with it. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please let us know. We'd love to give you one. In the meantime, would you guys let me just pray with you? Would you pause and pray with me that we would ask God to help us to hear his word this morning? That's the goal, okay? God, would you be with us today? We, we need you. My friends and I in this room, we need you badly. And without you, this is um, a, a heady brain thing rather than a life-changing heart thing. God, would you please, by your spirit, change us this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that some of my friends in this room and that I, that we would leave this morning different because of the power of your word and the truths that are found in your, in your word. We need you, God. Amen. Uh, we're we're going to read this text, and I, I think this text is going to answer a couple of questions that my guess is you have either already asked before or you ought to ask. You should ask a couple of questions that the text is going to answer. And they're real serious questions, even though it's going to seem like real simple English, okay? The first question is this. Am I sure that I'm a Christian? Have you ever asked this question before? Am I, am I positive? Am I sure that I'm a Christian? This is a really important question for you and me to ask today, and this is a massive doctrine in Christianity. So, so number one, am I sure I'm a Christian? Consider this. Those of you who are not churchy people, like you didn't grow up in the church, you're welcome here, and that's okay. For those of you who, like me, maybe you've been plagued with churchiness your whole life, uh, you perhaps know some of these churchy words that come in here. So like maybe you've heard the expression assurance of salvation or eternal security, or those of you who are churchy and you read, you've probably heard this expression, the perseverance of the saints. You've ever read that? These are big, big expressions, and the topic we're talking about this morning is one that's been debated and fought over for hundreds of years. Churches have split over the question that's on the screen right now. Denominations have formed and left others because of this question right here, and it is an important question, and my guess is if you haven't already asked this question, I'm going to ask you this morning, will you ask this question and see what the Bible says about it? 
Um, I, I want to share with you what our statement of faith at PBC says. It's going to go ahead and give it a spoiler. And so in Article 1, Section 3, Line J, I've read the statement of faith to find this for you. Ready? Article 1, Section 3, Line J. Those of you that are partners at PBC, you have signed and affirmed that we as partners believe this sentence to be true. We believe that every born-again believer is the possessor of everlasting life and is, oh, beautiful four-letter word, you ready? Kept, kept by the power of God and is thus secure in Christ forever. There's your, there's your statement of belief uh, quote for the morning. I have real concerns about this question that we're talking about today, and I wanna maybe share why this is a real personal thing for me because honestly, my first concern deeply impacts why I do what I do, and even choices when I don't do other things that I consider doing. So this, con- this concern right here, number one, is this. I am concerned that there are a lot of people in the American church who perhaps have an assurance and a confidence that they are a Christian when they perhaps ought not. Maybe they say, I'm sure I'm a Christian, and they give some reasons that wouldn't be biblical good reasons. I think that there are people who say things like, I know that I'm a Christian because, and they say something like this, I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer. I'm a Christian because I repeated after a pastor when he said, repeat after me, and so I I said those words. I'm a Christian because I walked to the front of a church service and cried. I'm a Christian because I got baptized. And those are all really good things, but those of you with some Bible experience, you know that those are never in the Bible to say, this is how you can become a Christian, by praying these words, or by getting baptized, those things don't make you a Christian. The Bible says that you and I are only saved by one way. It's through a personal, sincere relationship with Jesus that begins with repentance from our sins, and God, by his great grace, gives us a faith in him. To put it real simply, we are saved by grace through faith, nothing else, right? Are you with me so far on this? I'm concerned, and if I'm gonna be really personal with you for a moment and share something that Uh, sometimes can torment me, is a reality that I think perhaps 11 years ago, I think it's possible there's an individual that I baptized. I've baptized a a bunch of people, and I think it's possible I've baptized someone um, who I don't think, I think it's possible they don't actually have sincere faith. I think it's possible they don't actually love Jesus. They're not a Christian, and I've been a part of giving someone some assurance that perhaps they ought not have. Do you see why this is a problem for me and why this would be a problem for anyone if we get this wrong? It's a problem, right? That's my first concern. And my second concern is a real PBC concern. So PBC people, this one maybe is for us. I'm concerned that if we don't know the answer to this question, if you don't know for a fact that you are his, that he is yours, if you don't know the answer to this, I don't think that it's possible that any of us in this room are gonna live the lives of impactful Christians that any of us want to be or that God wants you to be. So I think that if we doubt this, I think that if you are saying, I'm not totally sure that Jesus is who he says he is, I'm not totally sure that God is my father, that I'm adopted as his son or daughter, I think we will choose the riskless life. I think we'll choose the comfortable life. I think we'll choose the conservative life rather than singing the words that some of us just now sang out loud that was on a screen, that because of his name, I will throw it all, it can all fade away, I just wanna follow Jesus. I don't think that we will do what God has for us if we don't know that we know that we know that he is mine and I am his. Do you see my concerns with this question? Does that make sense why this question matters? It's simple, 
And this is really profound, and it's important that you and I this morning really handle it carefully. We read verses three through six with me. We're in 1 John chapter two, picking up where Pastor Jared left last week. It says this. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You probably read the word know in English, K-N-O-W, that know. You probably read that a few times in those few verses, right? And uh, I just tried to do my own little counting of this. That, that word in Greek is gnosko with a G. And so those of you who know Spanish, maybe you've heard the word kenosko. One of the shortcomings of English is we only have one word for K-N-O-W. We just say no. Rather than a lot of language, they have two. And there's some different meanings for the word no. It's important to know the differences. I counted 25 times in this book that he uses this word no. And knowledge is a big theme in this book. And here's where it gets real personal for us. Uh, I want to ask you, my, my churchy friends in this room, if you're somebody who's been churchy for a long time, do you think that I'm right in saying this? I, I think that it's possible that we in the American church, and especially sometimes in churches like this, we have overemphasized knowing God and say that knowing God is more important than loving God, more important than obeying God, more important than trusting God, more important than following God. Is that true? Do we sometimes think knowing God is the end? That's how it means to be really good at this church thing. I need to know more about God. And we make that the end of our search rather than the means. Do y'all think that that happens sometimes? This theme that's going on here where he's talking about knowledge is really important And the reality is that you and I, you don't need me to convince you of this, that knowledge in and of itself is not sufficient. You already know this to be true, right? Like, there are professors in seminaries and doctorate programs all over the country and the world who know more about God through his word than I do and probably than you do, and they hate God, right? You know this to be true? There's a guy in the New Testament, Judas Iscariot, who knew Jesus, and as best as I can tell, I think he hated him right? The, the Bible says there are demons, those who have been previously in the presence of God himself and now hate God. Knowing God isn't the end. Are you convinced of that? Is that true? Knowing God is only the, the means to it, and it's really important that we get this. I, uh, I have a picture that we'll, we'll put on the screen that's going to come from these verses. We're going to look at these verses in a second. One of the starting points I would want you to consider looking at up here is the relationship between knowing God and loving God. I, I feel like this is a really important starting point that we get this. You can put that, that screen up for me, Michael. That, that perhaps the Bible has shown us that knowing God leads to loving God, but maybe one of the cycles that happens, as the Bible intends, is that the more you love God, has, has anybody experienced this? The more you start to love God and your affections are stirred for him, the more you just want to know him. Is that happening for you? In fact, one of the things that happens in the Bible is they compare loving God in this relationship with marriage. Some of you know this, right? In Ephesians 5, they compare the relationship we have with Jesus to the relationship in a, in a good marriage between a husband and a wife. And for some of us, that's a hard concept because maybe you're not in a good marriage or maybe you're not the product of a good marriage, right? I'm not a product of a good marriage. My parents do not, did not, before they got divorced, have a good marriage, And as a result, one of the things I do is I really carefully watch marriages around me. I really carefully watch husbands and wives because I'm someone who didn't grow up with a great marriage to emulate. And so I listen really carefully. How does that husband speak to his wife? How does he speak about his wife? I listen. How does that wife speak to her husband? 
Big one, how does she speak about her husband, right? And for me, there's a, there's a marriage, uh, I think there's a few in our church that have been really helpful for me. One of them, uh, my friend up running sound, hey Derek. Derek's an elder in our church and uh, his wife is uh, our discipleship director here. And Derek and Alicia have a marriage that I really, really admire. I really am thankful for their example of their marriage in my life and I watch it real carefully. And one of the things that I've noticed in watching this marriage is I've been able to notice that not only do they love each other more, but it seems to me that as they've continued to love each other more, I, I listen to the kind of ridiculously intense conversations that they have as they are trying to know each other better and know how each other thinks better. They haven't just settled into a, we only talk about simple things. They get into some really big desires to know each other better. And what do you think has happened? Their knowledge of each other has led them to loving each other more. It's been a cycle, right? The logic that you're gonna see in 1 John is this. It'll be our next picture. We're gonna start using some, some formulae because the only way I know how to read is in the, the lens of math. So what, what you're gonna see in 1 John here is that knowing God will lead to loving God, and here's the next one. It'll lead to obeying God. And so this right here, I hope you'll see when you look at verse three and four, the logic. Does our knowledge of God lead to obeying God? Will you guys read these with me? Verse three and four, it says this. And by this... So by what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say, by this, we can know that we have come to know him, that's Jesus, if, how can we know that we've come to know Jesus, if we keep his commandments? Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Knowledge that stays in our heads and ends right here isn't sufficient, right? Right? It doesn't make sense that it's not. Pastor Jared last week talked about the different kinds of knowledge and he talked about belief and Pastor Jared was making such an important sentence that it really matters what we believe about God. The difference between what you know about God and what you believe is this word believe has brought in the elements of trust and faith. It's gonna change the way you live. And it matters when we sing later today what we believe about God, it matters because rightly knowing God and who he is ought to lead to us loving God, which ought to lead to us delighting in obeying God. This is a real big topic that comes up right here in this text. And if you're curious, what does this mean to keep his commandments? We're gonna, we're gonna talk about some uh, potentially bothersome stuff in a second. But what this means right here, John's made it really clear. John John writes real simply. This, this, this book is written simply. And he has said it in the Gospel of John. We've seen it in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What it means to keep his commandments. His disciples come up to Jesus and say, can you simplify all this? There's so much going on here. And Jesus says, sure. The greatest commandment is this. Do you remember this part? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's a second that we're gonna get to in a second. But his first one is simply Deuteronomy 6.5. The whole law can be summed up in this. Love God. If you want to know that you know him, you keep, continually keep his commandments. And, uh, and that ought to be- beg some questions from us. I'm going I'm to set this part down for a second and maybe, maybe give you a, an example. Can you consider this for a moment? I, uh, I'm a dad. I have three kids. Only two matter for this story. All three matter, but only two matter for this story, right? So I have a five-year-old Summer, three-year-old Michael. Imagine this moment. I'm about to leave to go on a trip. Summer and Michael are standing here. My kids, I don't know if your kids are like this. My kids are very particular. At best, it's just obsessive compulsive. At worst, it's gonna turn into OCD and be a disorder. It's a thing. These kids are particular. And so my five-year-old and three-year-old, they're saying, like, every time I leave the house, we have to, in this order, do hug, squeeze, kiss, 
We can't do it backwards. So it's a hug and then a tighter hug is the squeeze, then a kiss. And if you do your squeeze too soon and then hug, you have to start over. Heaven forbid you kiss first. It's hug, squeeze, kiss in that order every time or something breaks. Does that happen in any of your lives where it's something real similar, right? You're, you're with me on this. Now imagine that I'm having this outro with my kids. I'm about to go on this trip and Summer and Michael are standing here and I, I kneel down, I do the hug, squeeze, kiss and I say, all right, kids, dad's leaving for a couple of days and I might be coming back in just a few days ready to just hug you, wrap you in my arms, wrestle you and it's gonna be so good. I also might not though. I might, while I'm gone, choose some other kids and choose to make them my kids. You won't be my kids anymore. I might just get a whole new family while I'm gone. And if that happens, I'm not your dad anymore, but I might come back. And if I do, that means I'm your dad, at least until I leave again. But again, if I don't scratch that, I don't know. In the meantime, while I'm gone, uh, it's possible, it's possible that you could just stew on this for a little while. And I hope that as you think about this, uh, that it leads you to being a, a, a kid who listens and obeys and loves their dad and loves others the right way. Be a good kid. Think about everything I just told you. Goodbye. And I walk away from my kids leaving in that place of, of, of uncertainty. Can you imagine a conversation from a dad to his kids that says, I don't know whether or not I'm going to continue to be your dad in a few days. Can you imagine something like this? It's hard to fathom, right? It's hard to fathom a conversation like what just now happened, Right? I I think I'm a good father in some ways, and I have a lot of ways where I need to grow to be a much better dad that God wants me to be. And yet we all together serve a perfect heavenly father who would never say that to his kids. And that really gets to the heart of what we're talking about here, because what God has for us is he has a desire that we as his children would be able to know confidently that you are adopted, you're his son, you're his daughter, because you have to have this security to be able to love and live the way that he wants you to live. This is a real big thing, and that's why in this text and in Jude 1 and throughout the Bible, especially in Romans, we know this doctrine to be true. Those who God adopts, he keeps. And that's a really good thing for you and me to take hold of this morning. A sentence that's worth you hearing today is this. Will you just consider this for a second? You are a worshiper. That's, that's, that part's not up for debate. You are a worshiper. The, the question isn't, If you're a worshiper, the question is, what do you worship, right? If you're curious what you worship, you could ask some questions. You could say, what do I fantasize about having? You could say, what is it that I'm most fearful of losing? What would I say that if I didn't have this one thing, life wouldn't even be worth living anymore? That would probably point you to some things that you and I worship, right? And here's one of the things we know about us as worshiping beings. God's made you as a worshiping being. If you worship your job, it will lead to actions in your job as a result of that, right? If you worship money, that worship will drive your actions. You've seen this before, right? You've experienced this. If you worship your marriage or spouse, that will drive your actions, won't it? If you worship your children or your grandchildren, congratulations if you've made it there, that'll drive your actions. If we worship a hobby, it'll drive our actions. If we worship laziness and sleep, it'll drive our actions, right? What we worship will drive our actions. And so here's where it gets real for you and for me. If we worship God, it will be driven by the fact that you and I will passionately delight in obeying God. That will be the result of someone who worships God. That's the action that'll come from it that this text is making clear. And if we don't worship God, we have idols. 
And that's one of the themes that's going to come up in this book. So for you and for me, the text begs that I ask you a question. And here's a question that I would ask you to really consider, maybe write down and come back to this. If you want to figure out this question right here, am I sure I'm a Christian? Then I'll, I'll ask you this. And I've never, never been able to make a sentence like this in church before. It took a lot of study on here and then getting counsel from Pastor Jared to make sure I could do this. If you want to answer this question, let me ask you one further pressing question from 1 John. Has your knowledge of God, what you know about him and believe about God, ask this, Christian, or anyone, ask this question. Has your knowledge of God led to you loving God so much so that you delight in obeying him? You just want to obey the Lord, your God, your king. If the answer is yes, I am confident that according to the authority of the word of God, our gracious heavenly father has given you a sincere faith. He will keep you. You are adopted. You should be sure of the fact that you are his. He is yours. Risk it all. Bet the farm. Don't live in any sort of comfortable, easy life. Say, God, I want to follow you with everything. If that's you, if you can say, I delight in obeying God, this text is going to tell me you can be confident that you know him and what a joy to be found. If you're not confident in that, will you hang around the rest of the morning? There's still some more to talk through in this, okay? We're going to keep going. Are you with me so far? So far? First question, am I sure I'm a Christian? And the answer can be, if you know that your knowledge of God and love of God has led to you delighting and obeying God, then yes. Second question, and again, we told you we're going to do simple stuff this morning, so here's a real, real simple question. What do Christians do? Okay, real simple question that you and I could ask. Uh, before we read the text, we're going to go verse by verse through here. Here's the, the last little picture of a little math formula here that this text is going to show us. Knowing God leads to loving God, leads to obeying God, and here's the last screen, ultimately leads to us loving others. Can you put that one up for us, Michael, just the, the last slide on here? It ultimately leads to us loving others. I hope you'll see that in the text. Will you consider looking at this with me? Verse 7 says this. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. I never even realized. He rhymes. That's nice. Uh, the word that you have heard. Okay. So he's saying this isn't a new commandment here. This, this commandment right here to love others, this right here is something that has been old. Can I just make sense of this verse? Maybe this verse felt real bible and hard to understand. If it was, let's just make sense of it. You ready? All he's saying right here is that the original gospel, what you heard from Jesus, was never anything other than love God, love others. Those were paired together in step one. Jesus tells us, let me simplify it all for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, heart, soul mind, and strength, and love others. From the beginning, it's been clear. And we have a tendency sometimes to say something like this. Hey, you want to be a Christian? Love God. And just over the next few years, we'll work out that whole I hate people thing. And that's not the gospel that John's giving us here. John's made it really clear from the beginning, the word that you've heard is this is connected. We love God and the power that God gives us through the gospel is to love others. So the gospel is this. Can I share the gospel with you this morning? Can I just share it in case it's been 20 minutes since you've heard it? The gospel is this. Jesus came to the world to save sinners which all of us are, and God offers freedom and hope and life abundantly. And he offers power through his spirit, the same power that can transform us into being loving people. That's what this text is talking about in verse seven. It's not a new thing he's given us. Let's read verse eight. Verse eight says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, 
which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This one maybe is a hard verse to understand. If you didn't understand it, stay in with me. Let's make it real clear. Verse eight is, is doing something, context. If you, if you remember last week, in chapter one, John is writing this because there's been some yahoos who've come into the church and said some really messed up stuff, okay? One of the things they said was, uh, look at me, I'm sinless. And he makes a joke out of that in verse eight. No, you're not. Don't say you're sinless. You're not, right? That's one of the things that somebody's been saying. Somebody's been saying something new that wasn't true, saying they're sinless, right? Do you remember that? Chapter one, verse eight, nine, 10. The second thing people have been saying is, you can't be assured of salvation. You could lose it at any minute. Your adoption could just be dropped at the, at the drop of a hat. And he's saying, no, that's not true. He's been talking about this right here. So he doesn't want you to think that this is something new in that regard. This is why it's new. When Jesus came to the world, look at verse eight, Jesus came into the world to be light in a dark place, right? You know this? And when Jesus leaves, he has entrusted and empowered this light to continue and be made new all the time through his people. And your job, Christian, is to continue to be bringing new light as it continues after Jesus. Does that make sense, what verse eight is saying? And then verse nine and 10 gets really intense. We're about to say some bad words in church. Get ready, here we go. Nine and 10, say this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother uh, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know that whenever I come here, sometimes we talk about language stuff and grammar stuff. And if you're somebody who hates grammar and it makes you mad at me, I'm giving you my full permission and blessing right now. You can cover your ears for the next 90 seconds because I'm gonna use some bad grammar words really quickly. Truly, I'm gonna give you the sign language for all done whenever we're all done, okay? So if you don't wanna listen to the grammar part for 90 seconds, you're welcome to do this and it really won't offend me. I'm gonna move on, it's okay. It's okay. What we're looking at here, there's a bunch of verbs in 1 John that are different than what we use in English sometimes. They're, they're, they're called these, here's the bad word, the present active participles. And so in each of these Greek words where it says, this is how you know that you love God. Anyone loves God. Anyone hates his brother. Anyone loves his brother. Anyone keeps his commandments. These are all present active participles, which means in Greek, they end in a little omega and a new, which says the sound own. Say own, own, right? So it's like, if anyone keeps own his commandments, if anyone loves own his brother, if anyone hates own his brother. We're talking about present active participles. This is why it matters, it really does. Present, that just means right here, we're not saying, hey, if one day in the future you hate your brother, or in the past, if one day in the past you hated your brother, this is talking about you. It's a present thing. Active means we're not talking about whether you, lo- you are loved, we're talking about if you are the one who is loving, doing the loving, the active verb. And here's the key, the participle part. This changes the translation. This part means a verb that is meant to be continual, that characterizes your life. So let me make real sense of it. Verse nine and 10, can I, I'm gonna retranslate for you uh, what these participles would sound like to somebody who knows participles in Greek who was reading this. It would have sounded like this. Verse nine would have sounded like this. If you say you're in the light, but you're living a life that is continually characterized by just hating your brother, that's verse nine, you're in darkness. Verse 10 says this, if you are consistently, a new translation, if you are consistently living a life of loving your brother, then you continually abide in light, and that's the evidence that you are a child of God. I'm all done. Anybody who took their their ears away for all this grammar stuff, we're done talking about that. This matters because back to question number one, do you want to know if you're a Christian? You do, right? You want to know this to be true. Do you keep his commandments? Keep own participle, sorry. 
right? That word, do you live a life that is characterized by someone who loves the Lord their God with other heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they want to love others and obey God? Does that characterize your life? If so, have confidence. Can we chase a wild goose for a moment? We're going to chase a fluffy, white, feathery goose because I want to talk about something real random for a second. You ready? Let's do it. Um, I love conversations about atheism. I don't know if any of you guys do. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy good conversations with people who enjoy studying stuff uh, philosophically and doing real careful thinking here. And if you get into a really good conversation with a, a person who has the philosophy of atheism, they don't believe in the existence of a god, uh, one, of the, one of the places, atheism breaks down in a few places. One of them is just the idea of morality. But specifically, one of the places where atheism breaks down is this question right here. If, if we say, hey, is there a reason why someone ought to love someone else? I want to read for you just a verse we just read. Chapter 2, verse 6. Can we go backwards? Verse 6 says this. Whoever says he abides in him ought. Will you say ought at me? I just want to hear it. Say ought. Ought. I just think it's a funny sounding word. I don't know if you do. Ought. I don't know. I like it though. Ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Go to chapter 4, verse 11. Do you see this? It says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought. Isn't that fun? Ought. Uh, You probably don't have to say it the way I'm saying it. I feel like I'm saying it wrong. But we, we also ought to love one another, right? This word is telling us why we ought to love others. And if you ask an atheist this, they can't actually give you a reason for us. They might be able to say, I believe love is good. And my experience is there's plenty of atheists who are very loving people and wonderful people, and they believe that love is good. But that's not a philosophical reason for why. Because if, if atheism is founded on this idea that we started at the microbe level, and then we over time evolved through these different species, through merely survival of the fittest and some natural mechanical processes that happened, then why would we depart from just survival of the fittest? Why would love all of a sudden fit in as something we ought to do? And then they might say to you something like, but love is good for the humankind, for for our species. We need this as an evolved species. And you would say to them something like, well, that's not a philosophical reason. All you're doing right there is giving me some other version of self-preservation. You're saying, for me, it's good that people are loving so I don't get murdered. But what if I say to you, time out. What if for me it's good, the best thing for me would be if I kill you and I'm stronger than you, which I am, or maybe I have more weapons than you do or whatever it is that we've got here, and we say, I wanna, I wanna kill you. This is where the conversation gets really interesting and breaks down with an atheist, right? They can't answer that question, why, philosophically, why should anyone, why does anyone ought to love someone else? But we as Christians have an answer here. We saw it in these verses, and we saw it, we're gonna see it in a few weeks when we get to chapter four, verse 11. The reason why you and I ought to has to do with the nature of God. In four weeks, Pastor Jerry's gonna preach in 1 John, and he's gonna read three words that are gonna be so good. He's gonna say, God is love. It's a real important three-word sentence that's in here. The nature of God is he is love. So why ought we love others? Because we are humans who have been made in the image of God, and because of his nature and his love and the love that he has shown us, we ought to love others. There's your reason. We ought to obey and love others because he's loved us. Does that make sense? I feel like we've caught the goose. Do you feel good about where the goose is right now? Let's come back and read verse 11. Here we go. Let's keep going. Here we go. Verse 11 says this. Oh, tough verse. Prepare yourself. Verse 11 says, "Ah, but whoever hates own, right? This is a participle. Lives in continual hatred. But who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Did you see four verbs in here that were really big? 
Anyone who lives a life just continually characterized by somebody who hates others, it says that they're in darkness. They walk in darkness. They have no idea where they're going. And the tragedy is because they're blind to everything around them. Put simply, can I, can I just make it real simple? Like the image is really clear. For anyone to say, I know Jesus, and to live a life with an own at the end of it, regularly characterized by being someone who hates others, they're like a blind person fumbling their way in a dark room, unaware where they are, where they're going, and how to get through. This is a real big word picture that's been painted for us, hasn't it? And so for you and for me, the question that we probably have to be asking ourselves is this. Will you, will you let me ask just a tough question? It, if you're reading the Bible on your own, this is the kind of question that you and I have to ask when we read these verses. We ask it this week. Is there any place in your life or in my life, in our lives, is there a place in our lives with a relationship with a person or some persons or a sphere like at work or in my neighborhood or family, whatever? Are there places in my life, spectrums, that are characterized by anything other than love? Because to John, there's not some middle ground. You love or you hate. That's what John's saying here. Are there relationships in your life that are characterized by that? And I would just urge you, Christian, there's no room for that in our faith. God has made it really clear there's no space for that. Would you consider that this week and make that something that you would potentially confess and ask God by his power of his spirit to change in you that we would change relationships where that's happening? Does that make sense why we come to that question? Question two was, what do Christians do? Let's go to number three. Not a question, just a reminder for my Christian friends. Christians do not forget what God has done. We're about to read six, uh, three verses, six lines of prose, their poetry. There's some real beautiful language coming up in a few verses. And the way it's written is six lines are about to come up. There's going to be six lines. They're going to say why John's writing this. And he's going to say, hey, if you're a child, this is for you. If you're a father, this is for you. Young men, this is for you. Maybe spiritually what he could mean by this is this. Are you a new believer? Does that cover you? Are you somebody who's been a believer for a long time? Is that you? Are you a maturing believer somewhere in the middle? My guess is this just applies to all Christians. So will you read these next few verses and let John encourage you with some life and identity? Can I, can I, can I end today with just some life and identity that you probably need to hear today that John writes for us in these verses? He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. You should say amen right now. In this good, your sins have been forgiven, amen? Isn't that great? Oh, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know, and it's not just like I know what two plus two is. That's our problem with English. You know, you know, you believe this truth. You know this. You know him who is from the beginning, God. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Your faith in Jesus doesn't lead to a victory one day to come. You have victory now. Praise God, right? This is good. He keeps going. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. You have the word of God that abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Christians, can I speak identity and just repeat the six lines that have just been said to you? If you're a Christian in this room, this is what John reminds you of, who you are. If you're a child of God, your sins have been forgiven. 
If you're a child of God, you know Jesus. If you're a child of God, you've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. He says it another time. You know Jesus. You're strong. The word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. The way we end for Christians this morning is this this simple point right here. This text is meant to where you and I never have to live in that story of Summer and Michael, curious about where we stand with our Father. God doesn't want that for you. The goal of this text would be that you would know that you know that you are his, he is yours, and be confident in that. And if you're a Christian in this room, if you know that you are his, because continually, with an own at the end of it, continually you have this life where your knowledge of God has led to you loving him so much that you just delight in obeying him. God, give me your word, give me your commands, give me your instructions, I wanna obey you. You hunger for more preaching, you hunger for more teaching, you hunger for more time in the word, you hunger for God to change you and not leave you where you are. Be confident in this truth. God has given you a sincere faith. He will keep you. What a joy, right? And if that's you, Christian, we risk it all. And we don't live some conservative, riskless, comfortable life. God has called us to an obedience, to a love for him and a love for others that is absolutely outside anything comfortable here, right? If you're someone in this room who doesn't know Jesus, can I just share the gospel with you one more time? And perhaps the knowledge of who God is and what he's done will stir in your hearts just a love for him that you will wanna have a relationship with him. Can I share with you what Jesus has done? When God made humankind, we by our nature, we have sinned and we don't deserve anything good. We deserve death. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's all of us. And God offers, to those who have faith in him, God offers forgiveness. God offers a hope that transforms lives. God God offers life everlasting, life abundant. God offers joy that can't be found in anything else. God offers a power by his spirit, a power to be able to obey him, to be able to love him, to be able to be a loving person who loves others. God offers so much in this. All that I would ask for you is if that love that God has shown for you is something that that you want, when we respond in a moment, just where you are, you can do it where you are, you're welcome to come pray with me. I'd love to pray with you. You can pray with somebody after the service, pray with somebody who invited you. Um, I would just urge you not to miss an opportunity to be be able to just talk to God and say, God, I'm so thankful for your love and I wanna have a relationship with you. I wanna follow you. And God can do something transforming today. Christians in this room, coming back to you one last time. When we respond in the next moment, will you take the words that we're about to sing about what Jesus has done, the words that we're gonna sing about what we know and believe to be true about him, and may they stir in you your affections for him so much that you would say, God, I'll do anything. I will not insult my God with small faith. I will not insult my God with living in the comfortable, living in the conservative, living in the safety net of me. God, you can take it all. I want to follow you. Would you make that your prayer, Christian? It's a tough prayer, but I would ask you to make that your prayer when we respond.